Today's scripture reading comes from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Again, that's 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to go through a five-week sermon series throughout Lent for, uh, on First Peter. But Lent starts this Wednesday, but Sung, Juven, and I won't be here in the middle of March. So I decided to start a little early so we get our full five weeks in. But we're going to do one chapter uh, a week, which isn't the normal process that I usually do it in. We usually go as deep as we can per, pass, uh, uh, per small passage. But we're going to go through all of chapter one today. Yeah, so brace yourselves. Uh, <laughs> But um, the title today is The Chosen Sojourners. The Chosen Sojourners. Sojourning isn't something that we use in everyday language, but it's, it means something like aliens traveling in a non-native um, land. Aliens traveling in a non-native land or a foreign land. And so when Peter starts out this letter, when he writes it, he just goes, Peter... An apostle of Christ, apostle of Jesus. He really doesn't need to um, clarify it or say anything else. People know, oh, this is Peter. Unlike Paul, who we saw when we did Galatians. Remember Paul, he would write a whole chapter explaining who he was and that he was called by Jesus, not by man. And he did the whole chapter one. But Peter just like, I'm an apostle. And people are like, yep, he's the apostle. So Peter writes this. He doesn't quantify it, but... He just says, I'm an apostle, and he starts right away to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And so elect exiles, I want us to read it as chosen sojourners. And we are elect. We are the chosen. And what that means is that it should remind us that God chose you. God chose us. So the personal relationship that we have with God originates with God. And this isn't just any God. This is the Trinitarian God. Three separate persons in the one true and living God, but they are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Maybe that's familiar to some. But we are able to be close to him because, number one, if you look at this Trinitarian um, greeting that he gives, is that when we say God foreknew us, to know in the Bible is to actually know intimately. It's not like just, I know your name. Oh, I know of this guy named Michael. But you know Michael intimately. It's a personal relationship that God is saying he knew us intimately First, and through the Spirit, he brought us close to him 
through Jesus Christ's sacrifice for us. But if we even look even more closely to this Trinitarian greeting, we see that foreknowledge is in the past. He knew us. Just as a father cares for his children, he loves us. But not only that, foreknowledge suggests that even before the foundations of the universe were laid, he knew us and loves us. Number two, sanctification in the spirit is talking about the present. Right now, as you hear his word proclaimed, God is doing a sanctifying work in you. There is power in the spirit, and that incredible power is at work right now in the presence in your life. So that, in the third Trinitarian part of the greeting, so that, or for, obedience to Christ. This is a future activity and goal. You're not currently there. You will be. You know why? God. You're not there. You will be. Why? Because God. And while you should be satisfied just hearing this Trinitarian, this really deep, personal, profound greeting, maybe you're not. You know, let's be honest. Maybe you're not. Then the readers of Peter's letter and you share something in common. Because they weren't either. And the longer we walk in this life, the more painfully we become aware of our frailties and shortcomings. And it manifests in different ways. It manifests by perhaps blaming ourselves. Maybe it manifests by blaming others. But it manifests and we become painfully aware that we have shortcomings that we are frail beings. And our obedience to Jesus in this life, we recognize, has always been incomplete. Which one of us can stand up and say, yep, I was obedient from the very beginning to the end, thanks be to God. And even the most mature of Christians that are walking among us today are agonizingly aware of the sin present in our lives. That's why Peter, he ends that greeting with, for the sprinkling with his blood. And that's really incredible. And that's something that we can't just skip over. For the sprinkling of his blood. The sprinkling of blood was a reminder to God's people that a life was given and a debt paid. Anybody who's doing the 100-day Bible reading will know where the blood sprinkled was. It was the mercy seat. It was mainly the mercy seat. And what's the mercy seat? In the Ark of the Covenant, they had these incredible things inside the Ark of the Covenant that the Israelites carried around with them. But they would put the two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. They would put manna that they got, you know, what's this? The, the manna that came down from heaven, they would put that in there. They would put Aaron's staff, the almond branch that like somehow sprouted. And while it was just the staff, these incredible things they would put in the ark. But on top of the ark was the mercy seat. And in the mercy seat, people of faith believed that the divine presence rested there. And that's where they, um, in the day of atonement, the priest would come. A sacrifice would be taken and he would sprinkle the blood on top of the mercy seat. 
And when the blood was sprinkled, this imagery that we see is now that this offering has been made and the blood was sprinkled, the condemnation before of the law is now taken away and the violations that were committed are now covered in this blood. So people, when they see this and hear this greeting, it was meant to encourage all those who heard it. And mind you, we're only in the first two verses, first three verses of this chapter. And so not only are we the chosen who were supposed to be encouraged by this, but we're also sojourners. A sojourner, we are temporary in this place. We have a temporary status in this residence, in our current place, because our real home isn't here. Our real home is not here. And as we sojourn, we are diaspora. We are dispersed. So God's chosen sojourners are people who have been scattered throughout the world. They've been kicked out. They've been exiled. And now they are sojourning, but their real home is not here. And there are two things we cannot miss before moving on. And the first one is my brothers and my sisters, my true brothers and sisters are scattered throughout the world. This is my blood. This is my family. This is something that we have to recognize. People of faith in Jesus Christ, we are of one family. And the blood that we share is not just any blood. It's not just the blood of our own names that we're proud of to pass down the Kim blood or whatever it is. But it's the blood that has been given to us in Jesus Christ. That means I have something deep and profound. The connection that I have with other Christians are deeper than anything else in the world. Anything else in the world. Even more than my name. Even more than my physical genetics. This blood that connects us, we have to recognize and remember, we have brothers and sisters all around the world. And do we know... Do we care? Well, Peter does. And he sends a letter to encourage all of them. And number two, suffering is implied. Suffering is implied. Sojourning and living as aliens in a land that is not your true home is not easy. And it won't be easy. This idea that once we become Christians, life becomes easy is nowhere to be found in the Bible, and especially not here. In fact, what's implied is that when we become chosen sojourners, suffering will come. If not right now, it will come. And we are in a place that's not our home, and so obviously it won't be easy. But because of that, Peter writes to God's chosen sojourners who are diaspora, to encourage him, encourage all of them. And it's to these people he finishes his greeting with this. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And now we, in faith, receive this word. As he moves on, we are born again to a living hope again. Not by our own achievements or merits, but it's because of his great mercy we have been born again 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have born again to, and it says in the Bible, a living hope. It's a living hope. You know what a living hope is? What we have been born again to is a hope that also is living, but that means it also grows as we grow in Christ. When we are first saved, there's a hope that springs up inside of us. But this living hope grows and increases in strength moment by, by, by moment by moment, day by day, year by year, as we walk in Christ. Being born again, this is the living hope that we are born into. And the object of this living hope, the object of our hope, verse 4, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So as chosen sojourners, you have been born again to a living hope for an inheritance to be rich. Not here, but in your true home. Your inheritance and your portion is in the eternal city of God. And this inheritance is imperishable. It's not like dairy. There's no expiration date. There's no amount of time that will make it any lesser than what it is now. It won't wear out. It won't decay. Unlike everything on this earth which is subject to decay. It, won't be, it will be undefiled. There's no stain. There's nothing that will make it unfit for God's full approval. Unlike anything and everything on this earth that can be stained, it's unfading. Unlike earthly wealth, it will never wither, grow dim, or lose its beauty and the glory that it has. And guess what? It's kept in heaven for you. Kept is a perfect passive participle, which means it's like reservations, right? You know, when you have a good restaurant that you want to go to, you call up and say, I want to make a reservation. Why? Because you want to make sure that you can go to this restaurant. If there's a movie that's out and you know it's going to be packed, then there's that reservation just to make sure that I can be, you know, I can go to this place and be entertained or get good food. But in the same way, there is a reservation for us in heaven that is kept so we will not miss our chance at what God is going to provide, has provided. And so this reservation is only as good as the person who keeps it, right? So if you call up a restaurant and you say, oh, I really like the steak that you have there. I want to keep a reservation. I want to make a reservation. And the person taking the reservation is just sloppy and unorganized. And you go, you may not even get that reservation, which will make you angry. But it also matters who's keeping that reservation. And then the Bible says God is the one that keeps that reservation. So your name is on that inheritance by God, and God himself keeps that reservation. But all of this, my inheritance, calls to attention my status with the one who has given it to me. It's not just about stuff, but it calls to attention my status. If I have an inheritance, you know, the picture that would come into my mind is like, the prodigal son, the inheritance that he got when he came back. You know, they put a ring on his finger, the signet ring. 
that whenever you sign something, they know who you are, but they know who your father is. And there is power and authority in that. It calls to status who loves me, who has a relationship with me. And guess who is the one that calls us and is keeping this, um, this reservation? It's, the, it's actually the creator God. God who created the entire universe. That's why there's every reason to rejoice and be glad. And finally, the third part of this chapter, we are called to be holy. And you might not think this is connected, but it is very much connected. How he greets us, how he says we have a living hope now that we are born again, that we can look forward to this inheritance that we have in heaven, the status that we have as a child of God. And now that we know this, it, all, it is connected to a call to be holy. Therefore, and this is in reference to the salvation that we have and inheritance that we have in God. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. This has this imagery of getting ready, girding up our loins, getting ready for battle or getting ready to do something big. Back then, if you, this preparing verb was really used to hike up like your robe because people wore long robes, you're going to go for this run. And it's, you gotta, you got to sprint or you got to go for this marathon. So people will pick up their robes and start running. So this preparation is something that uh, Peter is starting with. It's like basketball. I think there's a game going on after this service. You got to get your mental game on, though. You got to get your mental game on. And you prepare yourself. A lot of people have, like, um, you know, some kind of thing they go through um, maybe they say something in their heads I don't know but you can imagine a person I've heard some basketball players listen to a specific music they you know and they tie their shoes and they get ready and they get psyched for the game but in that same mentality we are also called as you see this opening letter to get our mental game on to gird up our minds but not just any mental game we're to be sober-minded. So that means mentally we can't be delusional. It's not mental intoxication or addiction or physical intoxication or addiction, which is pretty obvious. Because whatever that is, it'll make us dull, not alert, and lazy. But you, we, you know, you know how funny it would be if we're playing, we're getting ready to play this basketball game in in an hour or so, and you know, as you do this, you you get your mental game on. You're getting psyched. You look in the mirror, and then you start telling yourself something. But what is it that you tell yourself? Is it going to be, you're the greatest. I am the greatest. And you start, you know, jumping up now. I am the greatest. I am the, you know, that's kind of foolish because none of us here are the greatest. Let's be real, right? Um, we're in uh, mostly Asian American. <laughs> we're just a church. But it's to get psyched up, but sober-mindedly. Meaning we don't, we don't psych ourselves up with, you know, just ridiculousness, but in sober-mindedness. So when we psych ourselves up, we psych ourselves up with the truth that we've been given. The reality of the situation that we are in. And the reality of the situation that we are in is that we have a hope fully. It says in the Bible, the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That means the promise that God has for you 
didn't stop. He didn't just store it up. And, you know, of course there's no dust. You know, there's no decay. And we, we established that. But God has even more. This grace, more undeserved blessings to come. So get ready. Don't be intoxicated. Don't psych yourself out and be delusional. But how do we do it? And he says, be holy. Be holy. Don't conform to the passions that you had when you were ignorant about all these things. About in your pre previous life, you thought this was the best. And you were deluded. It hurt you. It hurt your family when you sinned. When you fell into intoxication and addictions. It hurt not just you, your family, your friends, but it hurt your future. It hurt your whole life around you. And he's saying, don't conform to these past passions now that you know God. But he says, be holy. And to be holy is to be separated. But not only just separated, separated specifically for a good use. You know, you could separate things back in the Old Testament, set apart as holy. That means you would stop what it was being used for previously. And it could have been evil use or it could have even been ordinary use. But you would stop that usage and you would designate that and dedicate it to specifically glorifying God. That's what it meant to separate something as holy, to consecrate yourselves, to be set apart, to be holy. So it's, uh, Peter says, be holy in all your conduct and be holy as God is. To be holy as God is, and this is what Rain Grudem writes, includes a full and pervading holiness that reaches to every aspect of our personalities. It involves not only avoiding outward sin, but also maintaining an instinctive delight in God and his holiness as an undercurrent of heart and mind throughout the day. This holiness is not just action, but it's attitude and heart. And this holiness as born again children, we should recognize there's a connection here. We're born again, we're children, and guess what children do? They imitate their parents. They imitate their parents. And so just as children imitate their parents, now that we are born again into Christ as children of God the Father, we are to also be holy and imitate the holiness of God. When we start thinking about it and meditating upon it, we see that this is a marvelous and incredible thing. When we're young and when we don't know any better, even before, before we were specifically called as a Christian, this is, um, this is what C.S. Lewis writes, how little people know who think that holiness is dull. But when one meets the real thing, it's irresistible. And so when we are called into God's presence, when we become chosen sojourners, we see that the the holiness of God is entirely attractive. I remember uh, when I was a kid, um, this is how we were taught in Sunday school. Maybe maybe they didn't, you know, it, it was truth. Maybe they didn't go deep as deep as we wanted, but 
people would say, oh, in heaven, what we're going to do is praise God. And I remember some, some of the friends that I had, they're like, well, that's kind of boring. It's kind of dull. Why would I want to praise God? For like forever? Do we, do we get like bathroom breaks or something? Like do we, do we get any kind of, can we, can we play sports later and then come back to praising God? Or is it just like 24-7 praising God? And this idea of seeing God as holy and recognizing God as holy was kind of like, well, that's kind of boring. That's, that's kind of dull. And C.S. Lewis is saying, that's because you haven't met the real God. When you meet the real God as God calls you, and I can't do it for you. You know, I can't be like shoving God down your throat. But just as Peter writes in the beginning, it's God who calls us into his presence. We, are, we recognize it by his, according to his mercy, because of his grace. And when we see it, we see that God himself is irresistible. His attributes his holiness, his just faithfulness, every step of the way as we do our best to follow him, we see that he's been the one holding on to us and our church and our lives. There, was, there were moments that we were on a knife's edge that we could have lost even our own lives and God would save it. And we recognize that not only that, but our eternity was in jeopardy that means we were going to be eternally damned it wasn't hanging on a knife's edge it was already gone but God would reach into the abyss pull us out so that we can be with him so instead instead of eternal damnation what we have is eternal life and when we see that this is the kind of God that is holy we see whoa I want to know a little bit more I want to know what kind of God this is that even though as hard as I tried, I couldn't make it. Even though as hard as I tried, I kept on hurting the people that I wanted to love and I don't know why. And I keep on doing it over and over again. And I wish this terrible cycle would stop. And then God would come and intervene. And he would start healing. And what was supposed to be a cycle would, that would go down from generation to generation to generation to generation to generation of hurt, shame, and just damnation. God starts reversing that to those that he called. He reverses it in your heart. He reverses it in my heart. And it starts to change not only me but the relationships that I have. I want to know a little bit more about this holiness. I want to know a little bit more about the personality this God has. Who would do this for me? When there was nothing good, like the best I, the best I had were intentions. That's the best I had. Because after those intentions, everything started to kind of fall apart. But God would take that and he would save me. I want to know a little bit more about that, God. I want to know a little bit more about your holiness. I want to be closer to you. I want to be able to see, whoa, that's who you are. And you know, when you spend time with God, you can't help but to think that. We see that when we read the Bible. Moses is like, I want to see your face. What does that mean? I want to see your holiness. I want to see your glory. I can't be satisfied with the things of this world. This, the things of this world are pretty cool. But I realize they're fingerprints. They're just... They're just signs, symbols pointing to the real thing. I want to know the real deal. I want to know the real thing. 
I want to see your face. And Peter is calling his readers now, the chosen sojourners, to holiness. You want to know the real thing? God is revealing it to you. So be holy like he is. Be like him. Be like the father who has called you to be his child. And holiness leads to at least these two things according to chapter 1. It leads first to judgment. Judgment. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. It's like, whoa, holiness is judgment. All right, that's, that's a little scary. That's a little scary. But we continue on. And then he also writes... Holiness leads to love. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Not, not, this, not this corrupt love that we want to call love, but from a pure heart, love earnestly. So holiness leads to judgment and love. And one thing that we have to recognize is you have to have both. You have to have both true love has to have judgment. And judgment that is holy has love. If I truly love somebody and I truly love them and someone comes and does them a grave injustice. Let's say, you know, someone comes and smacks someone in the face, right? If I really love this person, depending on how deep my love is for them, that hurts me. That gets me upset. That gets me angry. And if this creation is under my control, then I am the one that has to be judge and arbiter. And all these things that make sure that people get what they deserve because there is love. But if someone comes and you say you really love this person, you know, oh, I really love, let's say, Humberto. I love Humberto, right? And someone comes and really hurts him, slaps him in the face, knees him in the groin, and then spits on him, right? And they go, oh, Humberto, I love you. Don't worry about it. Just shake it off. Walk away. Humberto might be like, what's going on? You know, that's, that's it. But if I really love him and the deeper love that I have for him, when something happens, it affects me greatly. And because of that, there has to be judgment. There has to be judgment. Without judgment, you can't say that that's love. It's just emotion and it's fleeting. It's not lasting. When we see people, then we see grave injustices happening all around the world with slavery, with trafficking, with all these abuses to our young people, young girls and boys all around the world, through men and women. There has to be, if we say that we love our brothers and sisters, there has to be something that starts to ignite in our hearts too. We can't just be, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard, I heard uh, someone say, like, our Egyptian Christian brothers and sisters are being executed daily. But, you know, God will take care of them. Like, if you say that about anybody in your family, would they be, like, wouldn't people say, hmm, that, what? It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, my mom, my mom, you know, this happened to her, that happened to her. Uh, but she'll be fine. She'll get over it. Just doesn't work that way. And the Father who loves us so deeply that he would give his only son for us that kind of love. He loves 
and there is judgment as well because he is a holy God. Um, of all the things that we see in God's holiness, his judgment and love, we see that even Paul writes about it. And he says three things remain. What are these three things? And I want to talk about it really quickly. These three things that remain are faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love remain. But out of those three, what's the best? It's love. It's love. What that means is even though these are lasting, faith, when we see God, when we see him face to face, when Jesus finally comes and we get to see him face to face, that faith will change and it will become transformed into a deeper trust. So faith doesn't stay the same. And hope, you know, we, our living hope was for Jesus to come. Now that that's fulfilled, our hope will also change. It's going to move on because guess what? You know, once Jesus comes again, it's not like game over, done, lived happily ever after. That's not it. Lived happily ever after in fairy tales is because we don't even know how eternity should go on. No imagination can really pinpoint it correctly. So we write lived happily ever after. But the real happily ever after is a hope that will continue to move on in an infinite sequence of adventure. There is an infinite sequence of adventure that's going to follow us when Jesus comes back. And that hope will continue to move on from that sequence to that sequence. The story isn't done. God continues to create because he is a creator God. And we continue to serve him and grow in that adventure he has for us. So faith and hope do change. They morph. They evolve. Except love. Love grows. Our love increases. And so love is the greatest of those three. And this is the love that God shows us and that God gives us. This love that has been planted in you is a love that will grow and grow and grow. He finishes off with all flesh is like grass and it's all its glory like flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever from Isaiah 46, 8. He recites this because he is saying that all these truths have been given to you, has been pointed out to you all throughout the Bible. All throughout the Bible, this promise is there. And now we see it in Jesus Christ. We see it revealed to us. This mysterion has been revealed to us. And he ends the chapter with this. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This word preached in Greek is euangelizo. Euangelizo is where we get evangelize. And this word is the good news that was evangelized to you. This incredible word that has been given to us is news that should empower us, should give us hope. But that's what we do. When we run the race, we have to know where we're running toward. Um, <coughs> people have told me that if you run long distances, the best way to run long distances is to have um, goals in mind, like short-term goals or long-term goals and better both. And the better or more secure that is, the easier it is to continue running. Uh, a friend of mine said that 
he didn't train, which is terrible. I mean, don't do this. He didn't train for a 5K at all, and he decided to run a 5K. And he ran, ran it uh, pretty well. Um, and I, I think it was, like, not great, but it was pretty good. And then uh, people asked him, well, how'd you do it? And well, he said, I imagine my kid was in trouble. And at the finish line, he was calling me for help. So he <laughs> like that. I, I guess that's okay. That might work. Um, there are other people that said that when you run, um, you would run like short distances looking at objects. So if there's a tree there, you would run to the tree. And once you reach the tree, there's the next goal. And so this putting out of short-term goals is great. But that ultimate thing that we're supposed to look at and run toward, the ultimate thing is the living hope that God places in us saying, oh my goodness, I get to be with God. I get to be with God. Because God chose us for his own, placed his living hope in you so that you can live a life of fullness and joy because that's who God is. God is full of fullness and joy. And so he puts that in us. This is what we get in the beginning of chapter 1, uh, 1 Peter. And this is how we begin to see, oh, we need to get this. If you don't get this, you can't move on. You can't mature. You've got to get this basic. You've got to get this foundation down. That God loves us so much that he would send his son to us. And him sending his son to us is to give us this living hope that does not perish that does not get stained, it does not fade, but this inheritance shows you who you really are. Not what you once was. You were once this, but Christ is the one that will take you and make you this. And because of that, we can be joyful. We can be glad in saying my inheritance now isn't just in any old thing, but it's solidly planted my foundation my rock is Christ and so we give praise to God for this incredible beginning who reminds us of who we are everything else fades withers like the grass like the flower it will fall but the word that we have been given will remain forever praise be to God let's pray God, we thank you for choosing us, for placing a living hope in us, for giving us the opportunity and the privilege to live a life of fullness and joy. But just as the recipients of Peter's letter would have felt, we also feel that, that we want to walk with you, but times will be difficult. That's why we pray that this encouragement would stay with us, would grow deep in us, it would be more profound the more we meditate upon it and that, Lord God, in the end, we will grow closer and closer to you, closer and closer to holiness that you desire us to be. So, Lord, please be with us. Let's take this time to pray.